Have you ever wondered how an empire can come into existence, or how much we really know historically about the death of Jesus? Well, have we got a story for you. This is the AD History Podcast, weaving a tapestry of world history from 1 AD to HD, powered by TGNR. Get your good news that's real news at TGNR by visiting tgnreview.com. Now here are your hosts, Paul K. DiCostanzo and Patrick Foote. Brought to you via London and New York City, you are listening to the AD History Podcast. I am Paul K. DiCostanzo, and I am joined by my co-host, Patrick Foote. Patrick, you've been jet-setting once again. <laughs> yes, this, uh, honestly, if you listen to the last two episodes, it sounds like I'm just always jetting off somewhere. It's just like a coincidence that uh, at the last few times we've spoken, I've just come back from somewhere. Um, this weekend, I went to Ireland, Dublin to be uh, specific. And yeah, it's definitely not as far-flung as uh, Sri Lanka. Well, it is to yourself, obviously. But for me, it's just over an hour flight, I think, even if that. But yeah, I've been in Ireland this weekend. It's my first time there. It's really fascinating. And I'll tell you something. When you speak to an Irish person for however long you're speaking to someone for, with an English accent, and then you tell them your name's Patrick, they lose their mind. Really? <laughs> they were like... I won't do the accent because I don't want to upset yeah, anyone. But like, oh, that's a very Irish name. Like, oh yes, how do you do? Hello, yes, nice to meet you. What's your? They're like, oh, what's your name? Oh, my name is Patrick. They're like, oh, that's very Irish. Oh, 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 your name's Irish, but you're, but you're English. Like, yes, yeah, I know. It, it, I've got Irish ancestry, <laughs> but they lose their minds when you when you tell an Irish person you call Patrick and you're not in, and you're English. But Paul, um, what are you up to? And of course, I need to say to yourself, um, as I don't celebrate this, happy Thanksgiving for yesterday. Because as we're recording this, it is uh, the day after Thanksgiving. So I hope you enjoyed yourself that day. And what else have you been up to recently? Well, first off, thank you very much. And even though the British Isles do not celebrate Thanksgiving, and it's the day after Thanksgiving now, so for anybody who's curious, so it's Black Friday. Black Friday. Yes. Thanksgiving has always been, it's one of my favorite holidays because I really do enjoy the base concept, you know, just a day when the things and people that are most important to you, if they can be with you, are with you. And I've always been, yeah. and I always like making sure to call it Thanksgiving, you know, some people like to casually call it Turkey Day. And, you know, I get that it's fun, but for me, you know, Turkey Day could, could have been, you know, the second Tuesday of every month. So Thanksgiving always kind of held that that significance. So getting, you know, we're going down to the meat and bones here today. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and Patrick, you, you when you told me the topic you were getting into, it was it was both supremely ambitious and at the same time, a portion of ancient history within the segment that you and I are driving through right now. But unless you have reason to look for or know about it, despite it being really fascinating stuff, it's a less known entity. And I'm really looking forward to you telling us a bit more about the Cushion Empire. But before we begin, we will start out by giving our all-important and now entirely obligatory AD History Podcast Ground Rules. One, evaluate events in the context they occurred. Two, over the span of recorded history, the way it was recorded, its methodology, and the facts that are important have changed immensely. How we view history today is not necessarily how we viewed it 50 years ago. 
3. Nothing in history was inevitable. And 4. History and the past is like a different country. Okay, so the Kushan Empire. And it seems weird to have like, a, to me anyway, it seems weird to have such a set date for the start of an empire. But they all have to begin somewhere and this is where this one begins. And so today I want to look into just primarily how it was formed. This isn't going to be an exact overview of everything that happened in the Kushan Empire. We're just looking at these 10 years. It was in these 10 years the Kushan Empire formed. I want to talk about the people who made it. And I want to sort of talk about the impact they had on other civilizations at the time. And I guess the impact other civilizations had on them. So before this, we need to look into before the Kushan Empire, because these people existed before they had an empire. The people who made up the Kushan Empire, they existed beforehand. It wasn't like two founders like Rome, the Roman Empire of Romulus and Remus, and then people grew from there. They, The initial Kushan Empire were part of a branch of people known as the Yushi people. No idea if I'm pronouncing that right. Let's just hope for the best. And the... <laughs> The Yushai people were a nomadic group of people who roamed Central Asia. Where the, despite being nomadic, where they actually came from, however, isn't as known. Some predict they were they uh, came from the modern Chinese province of Gansu, while some others predict they were uh, all the way from Mongolia initially. And even though their home is thought to be quite far Eastern Asian, it's believed they spoke an Indo-European language. Um, I don't know how, I'm so numb to the term Indo-European language due to name explain, but if you don't know what Indo-European is, it's basically the name for the family most languages come from today. Most European languages like English, French, Italian, German, Russian, to uh, sort of more Indian languages like uh, Hindu come from up there. What doesn't come from up there are sort of Chinese tongues. So it's interesting to note that even though they thought it's thought they came from somewhere around China, they spoke an Indo-European uh, language, which I found interesting anyway. And that's what they were beforehand. We need to look into how uh, they formed. So these are, like I said, they were a branch of the Yusai people. And that branch of these people actually driven into West Asia by another nomadic tribe called the Zhongu, once again, don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. I'm so sorry to anyone. I tried to look for pronunciations, but nothing really came up. And um, they were a really fierce tribe. And it's actually believed they were the ancestors to the Huns, which just proves how scary they would have been. And because of being forced out of their nomadic patterns around Central Asia, they ended up in a part of the world that was known at that time, or has been known, become known at that time as Bactria. And Bactria equates to roughly modern-day Afghanistan, Pakistan, Tajikistan, and Uzbekistan. So if you can picture a map on your head, or if you're watching this, you want to grab a map, you can sort of understand how far west they came from all the way up, say, like Mongolia and Central Asia, all the way down there. So yeah, that's just something I found interesting, how far these people had come. Obviously, they were separated from the rest of the uh, Zhongu, the uh, initial nomadic group they were part of. And while it might seem like something of a bad thing, they were forced out of where they were initially, in my eyes, I don't think it was that bad a thing. It could be seen as something of a blessing in disguise because it was when they were here, they stopped being a uh, nomadic people and founded a homeland to themselves. And despite they were bested by the uh, Zhongu, they were actually pretty capable fighters themselves. And once they were here, they conquered the Scythians who were living in this land and various Greco-Indo kingdoms of the land as well. 
and even there are remnants of Alexander the Great's invasion forces that failed to take India, and they ended up there. And the uh, Zenhi, who would become the Kushan Empire, even took them out as well. And to me, it seems like the Kushan people have got no evidence on this. In Central Asia, they would have been small fish in the ocean. But then when they came to this west part, all of a sudden they were big fish in a much smaller pond, really easily able to conquer all of these other tribes. And it was here their kingdom formed. It was in this homeland right here. They thought, we've beaten all these other people. Let's start the Kushan uh, kingdom. However, there was one last thing they needed, a leader, obviously. And there's a couple, there's a, some debate over who the first leader of the Kushim Empire was. Some say it was a man by the name of Khalios, once again, pronunciation, I don't know if that's right. And he apparently proclaimed himself king of the Kushan. But then the first true empire is seen to be another man called Kajula Karfisius, who uh, was able to unite all these people into the Kushan Empire formally. And it seems some of the main evidence we have on these people are coinage. Um, they seem quite happy with their coins. And we have a lot of, of their coins left over. And I mention that because I'm going to be talking about their coins in a couple minutes because I'm really fascinating about them. And this was the uh, Kushan Empire formed. And it gives us just another key player in this burgeoning world. And just sort of a reminder that something I'm always trying to do here, there was way more than just the Romans kicking about at this time. Because when we think about this time in history, it's primarily the Romans we think about. Yes, absolutely. And because mm. <clears throat> naturally, from our inherent experience, you know, both you and I coming out of effectively a Western European culture, so much mm. of our historical worldview is deeply predicated on the experiences and history of the Greco-Roman past. Yes. And, you know, something we were talking a little bit about last time, we were talking about there is no East, there is no West, and I quote, we live on a bloody circle. And <laughs> and so there's this, there's this concept that historians will refer to that's relevant to you and I, which is how history ends at the Elba River. And so, of course, located in Central Europe. And so naturally, you can view that in a lot of ways. But one of the most critical ways in our case is having that Greco-Roman world dominate our historical understanding of these events, of which the Kushan Empire most certainly would be on the eastern side of the Elba, as opposed to our side of it. Yes, yeah. Um, and once again, talking about their location, I want to talk about what's so important and interesting about the Kushan Empire. And their location was hugely important. You think about that part of the world, it's nestled so neatly between Europe and like the Roman Empire, and then like Asia, you know, what's going on in China at the time. And I sort of described as middlemen for these empires. Like if you wanted, if Romans wanted to go to China, get to go through the cushions and vice versa. And of course, they were slap bang in the middle of the Silk Road, which was hugely important to them. But it wasn't only their location, it was their mix of cultures. These are people who were initially from possibly as far afield as Mongolia, spoken in the European tongue, but then they migrated to Western Asia. They got intermixed with Greek and Scythian kingdoms. So what I've said here is they were not only geographically middlemen for Europe and Asia, but sort of culturally middlemen too. And there's some really good examples of how uh, mixed these guys were. So the Kushan religion 
featured a mix of Buddhist beliefs and Hellenistic beliefs. And I'm just saying, if you don't know what Hellenistic means, it's fancy for Greek mythology. It's what the Greek mythology would have been called at the time when it was still considered a religion and not mythology. But more importantly, and I find this so fascinating, we have coins from the Kushan Empire which feature Buddha, and we have other coins from the Kushan Empire that feature Hercules. And I've written in my notes here, these are figures who are from two completely different worlds who I thought would never meet. Yet in the Kushan Empire, both Buddha and Hercules were seen as extremely important. I don't think it, I would have presumed anyone in this period in time would have known of both these figures. But here we are, we had an old empire who respected them both equally. And of course, there were many other uh, figures on their coins, but I just thought those two were the best to explain the juxtaposition, Hercules and Buddha, just two different worlds. Absolutely. You know, and to that point, something that I came across when I was getting ready for the, this episode and and your take for today is seeing from the, the general period of time of which the Kushan Empire existed and how there's an interesting bridge between uh, the Hellenistic religious views as well as the Hindu ones as well, where in in the case of the Hindu perspective of the time, Vishnu and Hercules were by some celebrated and honored as the same individual. Mm, they don't know that. I was taken, I was blown away by yeah, that. Yeah. So I, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, is like we're so used to having two complete different mindsets for these sort of people, but like I'm always saying, I think every podcast, I'm staggered how interconnected this world was at this time. So much more than I think most people presume. It's an and ongoing theme for you and I, that much is certain. Yeah, just realizing this connectivity. And I just want to end talking about these guys. I just want to say what became of the Cushion Empire, which is obviously far along down the road, because it really is. Uh, the Cushion Empire, despite not seeming that well known, at least to Westerners like us, it actually collapsed in 375 AD, so it lasted way over 300 years. Um, but however, what they did in those 300 plus years, I'm not too sure about because I didn't research it. This was supposed to just be about the formation of this empire and the impact they had. But I'm sure um, now that they, they're on our radar, they're on the world's radar now at this time in history, we'll probably pop in on these guys again at some point between now and episode 38, <laughs> I believe. At the end, yeah, I'm pretty sure it'll be episode 38 if I've done my maths right and um see what they got up to in their time you know when you know when you're looking at the greater cushion empire and you were totally I, I think you hit it really dead on at the beginning when you say well basically somebody's the story has to start somewhere and of course we're starting it from where we have but specifically when you're looking at kind of a, a slightly longer sweep, the experiences and campaigns of Alexander of Macedonia or Alexander the Great become so influential in the, the three centuries leading up to now and, and the whole general understanding of cushion culture and belief systems and being able to get a very palpable idea of seeing these worlds collide in uh, in a very direct fashion where they they intersect in a way in which neither side is unchanged from that inherent integration definitely that's a really good way to put it um 
Yeah, I was just really fascinated to find out about these guys. When I was sort of researching, what could I talk about this time? I just saw like, as you know, a lot. we, we start a lot of Wikipedia of our research. And I was on the Wikipedia page for uh, the 30s uh, AD. And I just saw one little sentence saying, the start of the Kushan Empire. And I was like... What? Yeah, <laughs> that happened. Yeah, <laughs> you just 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 one little sentence saying, "Oh yeah, a whole brand new bloody empire started." <laughs> so let's look into that, shall we? And yeah, here we are now. And like, I didn't know about this. Perhaps you guys may not have known about the Kushan Empire, you listeners. But now we do, and they're on the map. Like I said, they're just as worthy to be there as the Romans, as the Chinese. And I'm really looking forward to it. There's a new player. It. It really feels like a new player's entered the fray and looking forward to seeing what they do themselves and how they interact with the other uh, people knocking about on planet Earth at this time. Well, you know, something about this particular area. So when we're mm. talking the the Cushion Empire, like you mentioned, it encompasses a, a very significant portion of basically central Asia because it sits there mm. between that it has that direct land bridge connection with Han Dynasty China and of course to its west it has the Parthians and then slightly beyond that we have the Romans. Elaborate some more, if you'd be so kind, about given its its situation on a map, how it's oriented, I'd like to know more about the Kushan Empire based on its geography and its strategic significance because of that. So I have to crack open a map quickly. And even though that's where it begun, I have to uh, say the Kushan Empire only got bigger. In fact, it actually expanded into parts of India and it, at, its, at its absolute peak. In fact, if you get an open a picture of uh, the Kushan Empire, you will see how far it goes. So I'm just opening one up on my uh, browser quickly, just getting rid of the uh, Wolfenstein uh, tab <laughs> I had open. <laughs> but um, yeah, you look at a map of it and it's such a... It would, it's such an ideal place to be. As I mentioned, it goes right through the Silk Road, which... Has the Silk Road happened yet? Yeah, it is happening at this point. Yeah, it's that, happening as we that's speak. That's why when yes. you look at a lot of maps of that time and place in Greater Asia, and you notice how mm. Han Dynasty China has like this like hook arm. Mm. Do you see what I'm saying there? Do you see it on the map? Yeah, yeah, yeah I see it, yeah. And from what I understand, that it was a uh, definitive... Han Dynasty claim to be used for the Silk Road. But when I looked at it, I said to myself that it is it, it is demarcated in such a way that there has to be a very definitive geostrategic significance to the way how things are lined up and outlined in, in, in greater geopolitical terms. For the Kushan Empire. Uh, the Kushan Empire's connection to, to Han Dynasty China. So this would be mm. what we, if you were looking at a map today, so would be modern Northwest China, People's Republic of China, in and yes. around what we now call Xinjiang, or depending on who you're asking, East Turkestan. Yes, I see it, yeah. Their location, like I said, it's just, it was a real ideal place to be, and it could only help them thrive. And like... Also, like I said, it's just handy that they could so easily take over that area. There were people living there, but it seems all of a sudden, despite getting tranced out of their normal nomadic patterns by the uh, other nomadic tribe, they just flourished down here. And I guess that's because 
Central Asia, a lot of this all comes down, down to geography once again. You're not really getting much water or anything like that in Central Asia, I imagine. But here, you know, you've got like water all around you. You're good to go. Yeah, absolutely. You have the Caspian Sea mm. there, I believe, mm -hmm. at its height. The Kushan Empire may have extended as far south as the Bay of Bengal. I'm going off mm. I'm going off a mental map. I'm not looking at one at the moment. And you can definitely see how a a political entity like the Kushan Empire being between effectively Han Dynasty China and the Parthians and Romans in the West and how there would be such a strong possibility for economic development of their portion of the Eastern world, because in many ways that they are the, uh, you know, they're the front door to so much overland trade based on these huge juggernauts on each side. Yeah. And that also can be a great challenge as well, because if it's valuable to the Kushan Empire, it's valuable to anyone around them. And I've just found a really good map of Eurasia in the second century, and it shows perfectly just how nice and in the middle the Kushan Empire were between all that. So yeah, they were really just a really fortunate place to be. And you, they could kind of thrive off of everything else going around them. That's the, that's the idea I got. Like I said, they were middlemen, and middlemen only sort of exist to benefit off of things going on between them. Not to discredit what they did. I'm sure the Kushan Empire did amazing things in their own right. But it really seemed like they realized, hey, there's these two big old empires, or three, including the Parthian Empire. There's uh, these three big old empires sort of nestled in between us. Why don't we sort of mosey up with all of them, not really take sides of them, and just benefit from all of them, really? You know, something that is, you know, something that is interesting when we're talking about the Kushan Empire and, and using an entity that is far more recent by comparison, what we consider the, the modern nation state of Afghanistan. A lot of this is retrospective history, so looking back as opposed to prospective history, taking that position and place in the world from that time and telling the story from the first person, as it were, the first person experience. And I'm curious about your thoughts in regards to the Kushan Empire, and let's use Afghanistan because it's really relevant. What are your feelings on the description of that area of the world and those two entities as we understand them and being called uh, the graveyard of empires? Um, I never heard that term before, the graveyard empires to describe sort of the location of Afghanistan. I can kind of understand where they came from, especially obviously with the Kushan Empire, Empire that came to an end. It's an interesting term. It, and, and the reason why I mentioned the, the retrospective history in this case is because of the history that is far, far more recent. So naturally, Afghanistan is a country that is very notable today, of course, because of its relationship to terrorism specifically, that which led to and including um, September 11th, 2001. Mm -hmm. And in the century prior to that, we look at Afghanistan in particular, and we look at it, well, I believe there were three Anglo-Afghan wars, in addition mm. to, of course, the, the Soviet experience in Afghanistan uh, through most of the 1980s. And naturally, we also have 
the American experience. They're under very under a very different pretext, of course. But and, and while the, the term is kind of it's interesting, it's provocative, it's worthy of conversation. But it's also one of those situations from a historical perspective where you can't look at it at correlation equating causation because naturally the the British experience in Afghanistan it did not there's not a direct correlation between that and you know, effectively the the phasing out of the British Empire even when you're talking about the Soviets they had larger problems as well that led to the end of the Soviet mm. Union but it being a very large factor of of a, of a great many that led to its end. And the thing I find so fascinating about it is that in so many ways, uh, obviously the Soviet Union is much, much closer, but the fact that Afghanistan and the Kushan Empire, we go from it being the, the middleman, like you said, in, in, in Central Asia between the two juggernauts between them, that they're sandwiched between, and and to today in the last century, how so many of the great powers and in some cases superpowers also, despite the fact that in many cases they're far distant, that this same area of the world seems to be a, a continual, seem to attract a continual confluence of interest from very powerful, albeit distant countries or, or nation states. And that's some that's something I find interesting how it seems to continually find its way back into that role. Yes, that is super. I didn't really think of it that way, but that is super interesting that this sort of area of land is just always hotly contested by one, what someone or another. But no, that's a really good way of thinking about it. I hadn't thought about that myself. Um, yeah, it's fascinating. I don't know why that's the case. If there's some sort of valuable something valuable about its ge uh, geographical position. But it, it is definitely a part of the world, um, sort of say Afghanistan, and even further over to the Middle East, uh, like the, 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 the Arabian Peninsula. That whole part of the world is so fascinating. And it's where a lot of this begun, really, in your Mesopotamia, that whole part, it, it's where civilization really started taking off. So it's so vital, and it's just so fascinating. When you were deciding what you were going to do for your segment in this episode what is it mm. what are some elements about it that made it so attractive that you said to yourself well this is something i should look further into aside from its its location sandwiched between places that we've talked about quite a bit um the main thing that drew interest in it to me was the fact that i didn't really know much about it and i hadn't really seen anyone else talking about it all that much um, I, I know there are YouTube videos and are people talking about the Kushan Empire, but that was the main thing that did it. I knew that you were talking about yeah, a very big thing, as I keep on alluding to. So I just wanted to look in something completely different to that. And the Kushan Empire just seemed to fit that bill. Oh, yeah, no, no, definitely. And this is a story in, in the grand grand sweep of things that I definitely hope you you continue to revisit over time. Oh, I'm sure we will. When you were exploring this issue, what were some elements of the the Cushion Empire that you found really took you by surprise? 
like I said, I think um, minus the fact they existed, that took yeah, me by surprise, obviously. <laughs> but I think the real thing that really surprised me about them was that mix of cultures, how they were sort of being wedged in the middle. All the cultures they picked up on, and you can see it in the, you can see it in their origin, how they came from like Mongolia and China, came down to here, interacted with Greco-Indo tribes, Scythian tribes, made connections with the Romans, uh, with the Parthians and the Han dynasty. And it kind of all mixed in the middle here. And that just really took me by shock how much they latched onto other people's beliefs and ideas. And that's something like you, you say it so often on yourself, but in general, the Romans, what the Romans did so well is they latched onto other people's ideas when they conquered new land, but they didn't make them do things how they did things in Rome. They let them carry on doing what they did. And it seems that sort of thing happened here. They sort of just took on on board all these other ideas instead of just going, nope, this is how we do things. You're going to do it like this as well. And that's really what shocked me about them, what made them so interesting to me. Fascinating. What Did you pick up any any particular from everything i understand about the cushion empire based on the the nature of its geography how how diverse were the peoples that that fell within its effective borders unfortunately hand on heart i didn't really check what the people would have been like That's cool. at the time i'm afraid yeah if you, I guess a good way to look into it would be through their art. And I'm looking at their art right now and what we have remains of it. One of the best artifacts we have from the Cushion Empire are their coins. We seem to just have quite a few of them when you Google anything about them. Coins are normally the thing that come up. And the coins themselves look pretty Roman, if that makes sense. I know there's probably not much diversity in a Roman coin. But I think if you ask someone to say, hey, where does this coin come from? I'm sure people would say Rome. But if you look at, like, say, their monuments, they, we have, like, their uh, remains, they have left of old statues, they in themselves look more traditionally Asian in design, how, like, we imagine, like, a Chinese statue to look like. So, once again, that's a good idea of the kind of different ideologies, uh, different appearances, different cultures we had uh, in, in the Kushan Empire. You know, it's, it's interesting that you should bring up the coinage topic. Mm. And because, based on the fact that Alexander the Great extended out to what we know as modern Afghanistan or modern Pakistan, some portions of Western India, that something that I came across in my research as well was how the coinage was strongly reminiscent of coinage that you would see in the you know, Greco-Roman design. And something that's mm. worth noting, Dame Mary Beard, who is a, a, a truly eminent uh, classicist, mm -hmm. especially when you're talking about the Greco-Roman world, and so much of, of, of the research that we've been doing on my side uh, through the show thus far has been through Dame Mary Beard's overall scholarly work, and especially her fantastic Roman history, SPQR, and Something that's really fascinating to know, and this is something I know you can very much appreciate in, in, in the way I do in this case, is coinage, especially in the, the Greco-Roman form that it tended to take. It was one of the few ways that you could 
widely distribute the human likeness of a ruler, hmm. you know, whether it be first citizen, later emperor in regards to Rome, because it was one of the few entities that would be widely exchanged for services and goods like any sort of standardized currency would. But the way you would, you know, somebody who grew up in, let's say, uh, Roman Africa, and they would know how Augustus looked like, they would know because it would be on Roman coins. And I find it fascinating just how revealing the two examples that you just gave us, one being the Greco-Roman design of the coin, in addition to the, the distinctly more uh, Central and East Asian depictions through statue, that it's a very demonstrative example and contrast that so brilliantly illustrates the the very beginnings of what we would consider to be a more more globalized society and i mean globalized and you know not in in the way that it seems to be currently understood in a political context i mean it very much in a the world getting smaller and having the ability to more widely disseminate to a much larger group of people over vast <clears throat> over vast pieces of land masses where they're finally they're able to communicate the that greater understanding and identity that comes both in the statues and the coins and i think that's a fascinating it's a fascinating demonstration and observation on your part yes <laughs> that was your observation well, no, i observed it but you just explained it perfectly how interesting it is very well done but no, takes um, two to yeah, tango, my friend. Shows... I wouldn't have thought of it if <laughs> you hadn't two... brought it up. <laughs> well, hopefully I will be thinking about some big things in our next segment. And uh, before we start recording, Paul, uh, as I've been alluding to, you're going to be tackling quite a big subject. I said uh, the Cushion Empire was something of the undercard to your uh, main event in boxing terms. And we will be getting to that main event very shortly. Just after a few words from uh, the voice of AD History herself, Anno Domini. You are listening to the AD History Podcast. So once again, Patrick, we reached out to our audience for some questions that they would like us to answer. They're always a pleasure, and you can get our attention by tweeting at us at AD History PC uh, on Facebook at facebook.com slash AD History Podcast. Instagram.com slash AD History Podcast and by email at AD History Podcast at TGNReview.com. And the first of our questions that come to us for today is from an Evan in Albany, New York. What are each of your top 10 personal favorite YouTube channels? Do you mind if I start this off, Paul? Oh, by all means, Patrick, take it away. So, um, I'm sure people will be shocked by this. There are no educational YouTube channels in my top 10 YouTube channels. And this might sound quite controversial. 
I don't actually watch much educational YouTube these days, despite being a part of it. But that's sort of the reason why, because I'm a part of it, I don't have the urge to watch it as much anymore. A lot of the YouTubers who I started making these videos for, like CGP Grey, um, I haven't watched these videos for a while now, just because I live in that world and I don't want to take ideas from them. I like to just sort of do my own thing. I still watch educational videos from people I know personally. Other than that, I don't really watch much educational YouTube. I'm not saying they're all rubbish. It's not. I don't dislike them. I just personally don't watch them much anymore. So uh, my top 10 might shock some uh, uh, listeners because it's a bit of a collection of stuff i'd say there's two main categories of youtube i'm into and the first is being uh pro wrestling loads of you guys will know i'm big pro uh, a big pro wrestling fan um and the two main youtube channels i watch for my wrestling intake is um a podcast called going in raw and i'm so used to calling the podcast going in raw I forget that has quite smutty connotations, but it's because <laughs> w WWE's main show is called Raw, Going In Raw. It's hosted by two guys called Stephen Larson. And to have daily wrestling podcasts, sometimes two a day for someone who works from home and has no one else to talk to, and just have podcasts all day, is so good. Having like it's like it's like a radio show. It's having a daily radio show all about wrestling to listen to. And then also the other pro wrestling podcast every day. Uh, pro wrestling youtube channel i really enjoy it's called cultaholic um and they're really enjoyable there are english guys around sort of my age it's sort of that connection is there they all seem really nice um just give you sort of daily news updates lists about wrestling they have their own wrestling podcast it's just everything you could ask for a more really fun youtube series um and I also really enjoy video games on YouTube, but not Let's Plays or watching people play video games. I enjoy watching people talk about games, which might sound weird, but that's just sort of what I enjoy. And there's sort of various YouTubers who do like big retrospectives. Once again, if you work at home, have a lot of time to watch YouTube, the longer the better. And um, I've got an honorable mention I'll be talking about, probably my favorite YouTube video in a minute. But there's a guy called King K, and he does like hour long, two hour long retrospectives of uh, various like video games and all the big Mario games, all the Sonic games. I can just sit and listen and watch those. And they keep me very happy. And likewise, a channel called Game Explain, who I wasn't inspired by, definitely not at all but by the name of my channel. They do sort of big hour-long discussions about latest video games. I really enjoy those as well. Um, there's a guy called Kedicarus who does sort of more sort of zany 20-minute or so sort of reviews and looks at video games. That's more him sort of talking to the camera, cutting to him, doing sort of little skits. He's really enjoyable. Um, I really like his stuff as well. And someone else called Mini Me, who could very well possibly be listening to this. I don't know if he listens. Uh, Mini Me does sort of uh, retrospective videos as well on tend to be like older games or like niche games. So he would talk about like the GBA port of The Sims. Really, he calls them D makes. That's what then there's D makes. He talks about like the GBA port of a certain game, the DS port of a certain game, just all kinds of stuff like that. And movie tie games he's really into as well. And I've talked to Mini Me on like a regular basis. His stuff's fantastic as well. Other stuff I enjoy on uh, YouTube, other, the other channels I put on here is a guy called Ashens, who is an institute on YouTube. He um, just reviews tat, basically. I highly recommend checking him out. Lego is a huge love of mine, and I think the best Lego YouTuber is Jang Bricks. He just does really good in-depth reviews of uh, Lego sets. Uh, really professional content. I know Lego and professional 
shouldn't go together, but with Jang, they do perfectly. Um, Mr. Sunday Movies, who's been on YouTube for a good while now. Oh, I know all about him. Podcast. Yeah, <laughs> Mr. Sunday Movies, is uh, his podcast, The Weekly Planet, is really enjoyable as well. Um, probably one of the YouTubers I've been watching consistently for the longest time now, and he's just got a real special place in my heart. And finally, the last uh, channel I'm going to recommend is called The Big Les Show. Oh boy, The Big Les Show is something special. Uh, it's kind of over now, and it's really crude Australian cartoons about a guy called Big Les. I think it somewhat began as just a really crude couple second, like a minute or so animations, but it kind of evolved into like this huge narrative with like seasons and big long episodes. They did like a movie length episode at one point, like an hour long episode with really deep characters and a deep lore and it just turned into this marvellous thing. But it's still incredibly crude and vulgar in that way Australians know how to do because it's an Australian show. I don't know if it'd be your cup of tea, Paul, but if you're into stuff like that, I'd really recommend checking out the Big Les show. And like I said, I've got a couple honourable mentions. Um, I don't know, Paul, do you have Homestar Runner? Oh, goodness. I I love Homestar Runner. I, I remember Homestar Runner before he ever, before there was a YouTube. I always Exactly, rem- I, I, yeah. I always really, really look forward to the strong, bad emails. For as long yeah. as I can remember. Well, that's why it's sort of an honorable mention. They do have a YouTube channel, but yeah. they Homestar's the first that and Weeble stuff are like the first internet things I really remember. So I have to just give Homestar an honorable mention. I've still got like um all the little figures from home. I think that my parents have still, but like I had all the figures. I still listen to like some of the Homestar music on my uh, Apple Music, just stuff like that. Uh, honorable mention and the. Uh, Final honourable mention is a channel called Shay May. It's quite a small channel, but it houses one of my favourite YouTube videos ever, if not my favourite YouTube video ever. So I mentioned how I enjoy long-form video game analysis. I think that's the best word for it. Shay May has a video analysis about a Pokemon game, Pokemon Omega Ruby, that's seven hours long. Oh, boy. And every year I make sure I listen to it or well, watch and listen to it. Or I just have it on while I'm working or like, uh, I don't listen to it all in one go, but it's just a really amazing feat. And I think that might be my favorite video ever. And I'm kind of disappointed when every video isn't seven hours long. But Paul, what are yours? Well, that's a really interesting list you just came up with. Um, as far as educational YouTube, I would say that definitely does compose a lot of the stuff that mm. I really enjoy watching. Um, and I try to keep it as eclectic as possible, but mm. I get into all sorts of things. Like some of this, you guys may be familiar with some of you less so, but and maybe a little bit more than 10, but I'll get through it for you. I think one that a lot of people probably know at this point, but I've loved for a long time, which is of course, uh, Sam Onella Academy. And mm. I, I'm sure there's some of you that may be familiar with the Academy, uh, just brilliant and a very deadpan excellent way of communicating stories of various bizarre events and topics that he just does so perfectly and so dry i love it uh, another fellow that i'm a big fan of is uh john michael godier john michael godier is largely a uh, a futurist and astronomy focused channel he also has a complimentary uh podcast called event horizon but john uh, john michael godia his his bread and butter is as a science fiction writer and he does fantastic stuff he's right there hand in hand in certain respects with isaac arthur if any of you guys are familiar with him 
Uh, another one that has a long place in my heart because I started following this guy, and I was in his first one to two thousand uh, subscribers, which of course is the Alternate History Hub by uh, Cody Franklin, and that's a fellow that I've had the pleasure to uh, make his acquaintance and get to know a little bit, and I've I've loved the stuff that he's done. It's so it's perfect because when it comes to alternate history, you really need to know your actual history to be able to do it well. And I love how he how he does his animations, the minimalistic style, truly wonderful stuff. Uh, another fellow that I know both you and I, Patrick, are familiar with is J.J. McCullough. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, uh, what a, uh, a definitive cultural ambassador from Canada who gets into all sorts of things. Um, there's a lot of stuff that he does in regards to uh, comparative politics, which are fascinating. He's also a columnist, primarily for the Washington Post and National Review. Very, very interesting mind. Funny. I love the nature of how he presents things. Really excellent guy. And I also, a few years back, I had a chance to interview him and did a, a transcript interview piece from over on TGNR. Another one that I really enjoy, especially now in developing a podcast, is a channel called Podcastage, which reviews not just microphones, but all sorts of equipment in a really nice and detailed fashion that's extremely helpful for things like what you and I are doing right now, Patrick. And one that goes hand in hand in that regard is a channel called Booth Junkie, which is created and run by a veteran career voiceover actor, very good at reviewing microphones and giving tips on how to really handle the mic, especially from a voiceover perspective. Mike Delgadio, Mike, Mike Delgadio. <laughs> He's a yes, I know him. Yeah, he's do, re- I, do he, I know Mike Delgadio? Carry on. So I might have been someone else. Carry on. Yeah, and a, another one that I really love that is a um, is an animated channel is called AOK, where they make these really hilarious videos that are are parodies of children's shows that you and I would have grown up with. Like, say, I would say the funniest one is Caillou at twenty two. Or uh, Dora, all grown up. Uh, he, he did one. I think he's done a few on on the fairly on the uh, fairly odd parents. <laughs> I really like it, and they started putting out some new stuff in okay. the last month. So you heard of Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared. Oh yeah, in fact, they're going to get yeah. a brief mention with a, a different channel yeah, that I, I'm really into. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Another one that's very different than the ones we that preceded it, and they go hand in hand because they're made by the same people. China Uncensored and America Uncovered both of which mm. are hosted by Chris Chappell, which is basically a, a, a daily show type take about events in China and, of course, correspondingly also in America as well, usually large news items that give a really unique perspective on, on both of those subjects. And so very high production quality. They put out so much stuff. Very interesting channel to watch. A different one that also has puppets, speaking of Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared, <laughs> is uh, Binkoff's Battlegrounds, where they do large simula- strategic and tactical simulations of warfare, hypothetical wars between two countries. They're also now doing it historically, as well as doing kind of uh, fleshed out simulations and recreations of various units from various militaries in history against one another. You know, one of them recently was, could a platoon of Marine Corps infantry single-handedly defeat an entire Roman legion? 
I think it's really, really fascinating. And they have the puppet dressed up like a Soviet commissar. And he also has that kind of uh, Russian accent. And he has no arms either. And they have him in uniform. It's really interesting <sighs> stuff. I've just seen his. I've just seen the thumbnail for his Brexit Civil War video. I might have to check that one out. Yeah, it's re- it's really it's really <laughs> it's really cool stuff. Another one that's kind of futurist and as well as technological history, especially space exploration, is a channel called Curious Droid, who's run and made by a fellow countryman of yours, Patrick. Someone I would very much encourage. Going back to puppets, is the channel Glove and Boots, which is which had been done from largely 2012 to 2017 it went on i think almost a a whole year hiatus but they came back now almost a year ago really really funny stuff and you can tell the production quality of the writing and all of that that goes into it my mind gets blown yeah. away by that sort of thing educational oh, yeah, YouTube. i know glove and boots oh yeah educational mm. youtube channel a lot of people are going to know this i know you know this patrick is knowing better i've always been impressed with what mm. he's done for star wars Big fan of Hello Greedo. As far as educational in regards to military history, uh, military history visualized and military history not visualized is some of the best historical looks, especially on the Second World War, strategic, on the strategic level, on the operation level, on the tactical level. He's some of the best stuff going out there. Additional one, I believe, is from, speaking of Ireland today, an Irishman who who has the channel Real Engineering. That is incredibly impressive to me. A different one is World War II in Real Time, which is hosted by Indy Nidell, the same people, the same guy who hosted The Great War, where they cover, in this case, the Second World War, what was happening in that conflict. In this case, I believe it was 79 years ago that week. Absolutely love it. And my last two, one is called Ushanka Show, which is like a really down-to-earth retelling of a fellow who grew up in Soviet Ukraine and just answering questions and telling stories of what it was like growing up in the former Soviet Union. And the last one that I really enjoy, and you and I were talking about this recently, Patrick, is one called Voices of the Past, where this fellow finds interesting nuggets from history various writers from history and he re he basically narrates what they're writing about and oftentimes it has to do with what a particular people on earth knew about another one great example is what did the romans know about han dynasty china or did han dynasty Mm -hmm. china know about the roman empire so that's a pretty good list as far as i'm concerned going forward here I think if there's anything we learned from both our lists just then, with YouTube, what kind of content can exist now that simply wouldn't have had a home beforehand? Like t- television or cinemas would never have shown a seven-hour analysis of uh, a Pokemon game. But no, 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 no. That no, could no. exist. And like the educational stuff, like YouTube, it gives you a platform for such niche topics that can find a home. And I just think that's great. It just showed from your favorite channels and my favorite channels what can be done on youtube so our next question is from otto in munich asking what are our favorite video games paul so some of my favorites is the hearts of iron series specifically i know hearts of iron came out back in 2016 but i played a lot of my hearts of iron actually through hearts of iron 3 hearts of iron 4 is an incredible 
incredibly detailed game that is absolutely wonderful. So, but I, I, I have a special place in my heart for that. Growing up, I always loved the Total War series. Uh, Shogun Total War, Rome Total War, awesome stuff. Age of Empires, if you guys are into Age of Empires, of course. And let's see. I mean, I would say those are the big three in terms of games. Every one mm-hmm. of them, especially Age of Empires to Age of Kings, that definitely went a long way to ignite my historical imagination. And in the case of Hearts of Iron, it's one of those things where I don't know how I lived before I had the chance to encounter <laughs> Hearts of Iron, whether it be three or four, because it just it, it it's all you know all cylinders flying incredibly intricate and complicated game but a wonderful game can't get enough of that what about you patrick i'm always thinking to myself what my top five games what's my number Mm -hmm. one game and i think my number one game i think there's a difference between favorite and best for favorite game i go i go nostalgia i say pokemon red and blue maybe pokemon emerald that's just but you look back and emerald's a great game but pokemon red and blue they are an absolute mess of games. I think I just saw them described as once a bunch of glitches that came together to form a game. Oh, that's but awesome. From, they are, honestly, they're a buggy mess, those games. But from nostalgia, Pokemon Red and Blue have such a soft spot in my heart for me. As does a Banjo-Kazooie, another game I absolutely adored as a kid. And it's still a cracking game now, but that's so, so tied to my childhood, Banjo-Kazooie. Um, if I did my, oh, what I think is the best game ever, slash my favorite game, I go to Super Mario Galaxy on the um, Nintendo Wii. I think that game is spellbindingly brilliant from the music, from the gameplay, even the story. It's got quite a touching uh, sub-story for a Super Mario game. It's more than just Nintendo I play, however. Something I've really enjoyed in more recent years from uh, non-Nintendo uh, is the Tomb Raider franchise. I never really played uh, Tomb Raider when I was younger. My brother, who had a P- my older brother, had a PS1. I watched him play... Uh, Tomb Raider, but in more recent years there's a reboot series, and at least the first one of that reboot series, which is just called Tomb Raider, I think I picked up for like fifteen pounds on Steam when it was going cheap once, and I just fell head over heels in love with that game. It's just absolutely incredible. Um, it's kind of like the Uncharted series, I guess. It's more like a linear experience. It's like playable action movie, and it was just so good. So yeah, I'd say they're some of my favorite games. Yeah, and outside of just like history games for myself, I grew up, of course, playing the Madden series, American football, always loved baseball video games. I was born and raised a New York Yankees fan. And now with the most wonderful woman I've married in the family I've married into, I've also welcomed the uh, St. Louis Cardinals in there as well. But that's a a topic for another time, of course. (laughs) But uh, I love Siphon Filter growing up as a rather Mm. old title for a lot of people but it's one that definitely spoke to me a great deal mortal Kombat. i grew up playing mortal Kombat back when it was a new and happening thing in an arcade this is even a little before you were born patrick if you can believe it was yes i always loved mortal Kombat 2 especially mortal Kombat 2 for me always hit it right on the head hell i can still i can still remember on sega the fatality where Luke Kang transforms into a dragon and chomps off the upper portion of the body of his opponent, which of course so, is down forward, back, back, high kick. <laughs> so were you a Sega boy then back in the console wars? Uh, yeah, back in the console wars. Yeah, the first console I received was a Sega Genesis for my birthday from my grandparents in uh, when I was in first grade. 
after that, I would say around fifth grade for me, so 97, 98, my brother and I bought the original PlayStation. After that came PS2, PS3, and now, of course, PS4. And next year, amazingly, we're going to get the fifth generation console. It's, it's, it's so alien sounding, PS5. It really it's is. It's crazy. So you're very much opposite the opposite end of me because I've I I mean my earliest gaming memories is with the PS One. I remember my brother having a uh, PS One, get him getting it for Christmas, watching him play Crash Bandicoot, Porsche Challenge. They're my earliest gaming memories, and then from there I sort of form my own path with Nintendo, and I've loved them ever since. When I went to Kyoto earlier, no, last year. Me, I dragged my girlfriend through the pouring rain of Kyoto for about 40 minutes to go find a big white building, what just said Nintendo on the side of it, because that's their HQ. And like, like, take a picture of me outside this building. And that's just, it's such a defining part of my life now, my, my love for this random Japanese company. Oh, I just remembered one that, that, that I'll leave off for myself. Mm. Growing up, my brother and I loved playing Sim City. Yes, so yeah, I've enjoyed Sim City. Yeah, that was something... I first got exposed to it through a friend who had a SNES console. Mm. And then, of course, it was also widely available on the computer. And that's just kind of like an ongoing theme, as well as Railroad Tycoon and uh, Roller Coaster mm. Tycoon. I love games. Oh, yeah. so Roller Coaster Tycoon. I love that game. I love games <laughs> where it's where you where it's a sandbox, where basically, yes, you're you decide what matters to you. And I love I've always loved building. I've always loved where I'm able to create a world of some sort. Have you heard of a prison architect? No, but I want to know more about it. Uh, I haven't played it myself, but it's 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 like a roller coaster tycoon, but for a prison, it's quite popular. Oh boy! Yeah, prison architect. I think yeah, I think the characters look a little bit like my own. I'm not saying they stole them; it was way before I did it. But yeah, that's one I'd recommend. I've heard very good things about. And as far as our last question here for us which comes from a Sarah in Quebec. What are a couple of topics you would have liked to do but didn't that occurred in the time periods you've covered so far? So I think so far is the key part of this. Um, thankfully, I feel quite fortunate that I haven't really missed anything else I wanted to cover in that time period, simply because we don't know as much about this time. But I think going forward, this is going to become like an issue, like really far down the line. We're going to have one episode to cover the 1960s. So much happened in the 1960s. How am I supposed to pick one thing that was going on in that time? So I think this will definitely be a bigger question going further down the line. But right now, I feel quite okay. I would say a big one. And obviously, there, there, there's a very good reason. Back in episode one, talking about 9 AD would have been going into greater detail about the Romans being massacred at the Totenberg Forest. That's considered a, a watershed moment in the history of the Roman Empire, not simply because it, it so clearly demonstrated the capacity as, as an adversary or enemy for the Roman Empire among the, the various disparate tribes that composed Germania, but the fact of the matter is it had a deep psychological impact for Romans themselves. It wasn't just a matter of loss of pride. It was a pretty ground-shaking event for for the Romans and basically a distinct demonstration that as well-organized and trained and equipped 
as Roman legions in the field were, that basically getting their rear end handed to them was big in a way relative to the peoples in question that rivals any similar events in the history of any people. So that's definitely one that if I had a a second choice for that first episode, I would have gone into Totenberg Forest. Well, once we're done with what we're doing, why don't we start again from the beginning, but look at different subjects? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. De- uh, we're we're going to find a way to, to, to bring all these in together, you know? Yeah, I've, I've been thinking about definitely. that. You know, that that's one of the challenges of our show, I think, and that's something that our listeners probably have guessed, but is absolutely the truth. There are been number of times so far where we've been faced with a choosing one topic when you could have chosen a dozen others and they would have all been equally worthy of that sort of attention. So it's one of the challenges of the job and it's a judgment call and you run with it, but it, it can be quite it can be quite a challenge to say this is the one that I think is most important. I have to do this one. This is the AD History Podcast. Keep up with the show and join the discussion by following AD History on Twitter with the handle at AD History PC and the hashtag AD History. Check us out over on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube by searching AD History Podcast, as well as, of course, tgnreview.com slash AD History Podcast. Now back to Paul and Patrick. Now, Paul, it's time for you to talk about your topic today, which is, I wouldn't, I, I, I might possibly say it's probably one of the most important things we'll be talking about in all of AD history, because it's so vital to what AD means and what it is. In fact, many people uh, often mistakenly believe it's the events you're talking about today as to how AD got his name. Well, there's no way to overstate the case, Patrick. In all the subjects that we are going to cover together in AD history, this is going to be, of course, one of the biggest, and for obvious reasons. But before we go any further, something that's really important to note, in addition to the ground rules that we now have at the beginning of every episode, relevant to this, when it comes to our searching and exploring what is known as the historical Jesus, it's important to note that historical Jesus is not a code word for the real Jesus. In the mind of the audience, something that's important to remember is that when it comes to history, there's a difference between history and the past. Past are events that are completely unrecoverable and cannot be replicated again. That's lost to us. But history is a method by which a historian uses very specific tools to find evidence to recreate those events with the most accuracy that they can possibly create or ascertain. So when we're talking about the historical Jesus, it's not a code word for the real Jesus. The past is gone and it's never coming back. The next thing I also want to be sure is in terms of our exploration of this subject, we are not telling anybody what to believe, what is right, or what is wrong, what this means in terms of the significance on the subject in their life, which varies a great deal from person to person. We're simply using the tools of a historian, which are very specific in how we go about this thing, and they differ quite a bit at times 
from the methods of a theologian or necessarily a religious studies scholar. So that, that's very important to keep in mind. It's just a very specific lens that we are using. That is very true, Paul. We're not here to tell you um, about what you should or should not believe in. We're sort of just here for facts, the history behind it. And I just want to add, I'm so happy you're covering this topic, Paul, because I would have already put my foot in my mouth seven times by now or so, I reckon. <laughs> when it comes to a figure as important and as enormous as Jesus of Nazareth, there are a lot of things that we have to be able to kind of set down and put aside. So we, basically, we have several lists of questions that are really important, especially after 2,000 years. And those questions quite simply are, what do we know? What do we think we know? Why do we think we know it? What don't we know? And what is unknowable? When it comes to this topic and historians and the historical Jesus, what do most historians have consensus upon in terms of what can be known about Jesus through the historical lens? Well, he's largely believed to have been born between 1 BC and 4 AD, the circumstances of which are unclear. We're talking about a single individual who most certainly was raised as Jewish and in the Jewish tradition that seems to be generally believed that he had a, a practical profession, in many cases the one being a carpenter, something that's practical, something that's respected. He mostly lived his life in Galilee, which is the northernmost province of first century Roman Palestine that includes Samaria and the all-important Judea because it has Jerusalem and Jerusalem has the temple. And of course, Nazareth is located in Galilee. We're talking about a small establishment in, relatively speaking, especially to Jerusalem, that's pretty far distant, certainly a rural area, not the cosmopolitan center. And it's largely believed that his, what they call his public ministry, which is the one that, which is, are the events that are covered in most of the four Gospels that are included in the Christian New Testament, occurring between 28 AD and 33 AD. He was executed with Roman consent on their authority on or near Passover in Jerusalem. And something is interesting when we start talking about this. Well, here's a question to ask. How do we know that his ministry lasted three years? That is a very good question, Paul. Uh, do you have any answers for us? Well, it's difficult to ascertain, but this is largely how it was done. Basically, what theologians in particular notice, and this does have historical roots, and it's a, something that would mo very much concur with what we're doing. In the four Gospels, specifically Mark, Matthew, and Luke, they only mention Passover one time. However, in the Gospel of John, they mention Passover three times. So why is this significant? Well, from you're doing some contextual criticism here and extrapolating information that's useful, they actually, they're, they're marking the years by how many times it's mentioned. And of course, Passover is not the celebration of the Jewish New Year, that's Rosh Hashanah, but it is an annual event. So you have John, it mentions it three times, three years. About the best we're going to do in that respect. And this is largely what's out there. This is largely what historians are able to concur on, in addition to the fact that he also died roughly at 33 years of age. Now, in terms of the Gospels themselves and history, 
is that from a historical perspective and the perspective of a historian, there's certain difficulties when it comes to the Gospels when looking at it as a historian, because while they tell the same general story in a way that's consistent, they have very significant differing details at sometimes very important points in the text. For example, when you're looking at the Gospel of John and the trial of Jesus, you look at Mark, and there's almost no conversing between Jesus and Pilate. Whereas when you look at John, there's an entire conversation going back and forth. So looking at it from a historical perspective, while it is significant in that they all agree in the general story as it moves forward from a historical perspective, when it comes to being able to say, Jesus said this, Jesus said that, it becomes very difficult to pin down because they're looking to get a consistent and reoccurring account from otherwise unrelated or disparate sources, which is very, very difficult when it comes to ancient history, of course. And so, on top of the fact that, of course, the Gospels, and, there, and there's more than just the four, of course, that became canon, but that's a different story. But those are the four that were included. You know, there are many other Gospels that weren't included. One is, of course, the, the now very popular and very interesting Gospel of Judas, which has been talked about in the last 20 years that was originally found quite by chance in Egypt back in the 1970s. And it largely comes out of this idea that when it comes to Christian communities, especially these early Christian communities that are around the Mediterranean and that are beginning to grow in, in their following, a lot of them tend to focus more or less while having the same story, but on specific figures from that story. And hence, you're getting you're getting that. In addition to the fact, of course, when it comes to these, specifically the four that became canon, they were largely written between 70 AD and 120 AD, which of course is many decades later, and it's very unlikely that the originators of that information would have been alive to, at the very least, dictate their experience from the first hand. So, when you're looking at it as a historian, the best information you can ever have, of course, is a, a highly verifiable source that is giving contemporaneous accounts of what is happening. And in ancient history, that can be very difficult to do. While they're good in terms of a general story and helpful in that respect, the details differ significantly. So when you talk about Jesus said this or Jesus said that, Depending on the scholar in question, they can say, for the most part, the one thing that they feel they can say with reasonable certainty in terms of what he said actually happened during his crucifixion, when the, the famous passage, Father, why have thou forsaken me? When you bring it back into Aramaic, the term father is actually the word Abba, which is actually far more personal than the more formal father. It's more like Papa. So, that's that's the kind of thing that we're dealing with here that, that makes this also difficult in general. We have to ask ourselves the question that, well, the New Testament and the four Gospels are helpful in terms of their the general story and the consensus on the facts that we mention in terms of what historians largely believe. What are some historical and otherwise non-Christian sources? Well, this is interesting. 
So one of the main ones that they ultimately end up using is known as a, a, hist a history called Antiquities of the Jews, and it was written by Flavius Josephus, who was a Hellenized Jew who ended up in his early life as a slave but was freed. And when he was freed, he wrote a, a number of histories, one of which is Antiquity of the Jews. And in this case, he was trying to write a more complete and more balanced history of the Jewish people up into the late first century AD. It's believed Antiquities was penned by him in about the mid-90s AD, in fact. And the reason he wanted to do this is because most of the histories that were written about the Jews at the time, specifically from the Roman perspective, and he was writing this in Rome from all we can tell. Mm. The, the major passage in this, and I'm going to read this for the audience because it's definitely of value to be sure, there is, of course, the, the Greek version of which a lot of the stuff was originally penned in, including the Gospels themselves initially, because they're the lingua franca of the Mediterranean ancient world, meaning if there are people of all different languages, it may not be their native tongue, but it's a language that they can converse in that most people understand. It's kind of like how English is used today. We have a Greek version. It's not the original manuscript, and that's unfortunate that we haven't been able to find that. This is definitely coming later in time. And we also have an Arabic version from the 11th century. Now, the reason I'm reading this is because we're getting into an area that's really significant, and that is what's known as the issue of interpolation. For those who are not familiar, interpolation is when you have later editors or writers that will take a work and they will either insert something or remove something, whatever their motivations may be. So without the original manuscript, it can be very difficult. And in the case of Josephus, since we don't have that original manuscript, there is believed to be potential areas of interpolation. But having the Arabic copy from the 11th century, which from what I understand is, does not originate, nor was in any way altered by potential later Christian editors and writers, that's a significant. But I'm going to read the Greek version, and I'm going to note when scholars believe possible interpolation exists, and when I finished up, I'll tell you why. So here's the Greek version of where Josephus mentions Jesus in his Antiquities of the Jews. Quote, about this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, this is where possible interpolation occurs, if indeed one ought to call him that, that's where it ends, for he was one who wrought surprising feats and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. This next line is also potential interpolation. He was the Christ. That's where that portion of it ends. Continue on the passage. When Pilate, upon hearing him accused by men of the highest standing among us, had condemned him to be crucified, those who had in the first place come to love him did not give up their affection for him. This next line is where possible interpolation begins again. On the third day he appeared to them restored to life. For the prophets of God had prophesied these and countless other marvelous things about him. That's where that possible interpolation ends. This is the remainder of the passage. And the tribe of the Christians, so called after him, has still to this day not disappeared. Close quote. Now, when you're looking at this and the points in which I mentioned the possible interpolation, like, for example, the first one I mentioned, quote, 
if indeed one ought to call him a man, the reason why scholars believe that is a one of the possible points of interpolation is you have to remember who Josephus was. We're talking about a Hellenized Jew who is writing this history and is bound to form with the best sources he could possibly accrue, which is incredibly difficult in the ancient world. It's incredibly difficult in the modern world. But coming from that perspective, it would put Jesus on, on a pedestal that there's no reason to believe Josephus ever would have. It's simply, it's not congruous with what many scholars believe was his worldview. The next one, of course, was he was the Christ. That pretty much speaks for itself, given what I had just mentioned. And of course, the last one, on the third day he appeared to them restored to life, for prophets of God had prophesied these and countless other marvelous things about him. Once again, that's also rather self-explanatory. Now, here is the Arabic version, and it doesn't include the possible points of interpolation, and we can kind of mix and match this in the way historians and scholars of these things often do. Quote, At this time there was a wise man who was called Jesus, and his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. And many people among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die, and those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have recounted wonders. End quote. And you can see in both how there are similarities trying to, in many ways, recreate this original manuscript Josephus had created, but that they certainly don't beat for beat by any means. And the other very significant source in regards to Jesus that is not clearly not from a Christian source is, of course, the Roman historian Tacitus, who we spoke about a couple episodes ago. He's noted for many things. One of his greatest works was doing a history of the uh, Roman emperors, or princeps when it began, from the death of Augustus up to about the 120 80s when he was writing this. And one of his great works, and one that's most significant to us in this case, is the Annals, which is also being written in the 120s AD, talking about Christians relative in, in, very, in various ways. But it actually had most to do with his bit on the great Roman fire and, the, and Nero basically pointing the finger at them as being responsible. So, in the annals where this is significant, I will read the passage. Quote, But all human efforts, all the lavish gifts of the emperor, and the appropriation of the gods did not banish the sinister belief that the conflagration was the result of an order. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty. Then, upon their information, 
an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city as of hatred against mankind. And he further goes on to talk about the Christian's treatment in this situation. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to be the flames and burnt, to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. Nero offered his gardens for the spectacle, and was exhibiting a show in the circus, while he mingled with the people in the dress of a charioteer, or stood aloft on a car. Hence, even for criminals who deserved extreme and exemplary punishment, there arose a feeling of compassion, for it was not, as it seemed, for the public good, but to glut one man's cruelty, that they were being destroyed. Close quote. Now, why is this significant? It's significant in a number of ways. One is, it's because we're looking at a definitively non-Christian Roman source. Granted, it was definitely created in the 120 ADs. However, it's interesting. One, even though he definitely does not condone what he believed Nero did, he also is no fan of the Christians either. He most certainly calls it mischievous superstitions, but it does at the very least establish that one, that he knew of Christians, and they were at that point completely distinct from Judaism, which is very significant because Christianity, of course, was born out of Judaism because Jesus was a Jew. That much is absolutely certain. He also speaks of Jesus himself and his fate, in addition to the fact where this would have all began. So we can see very clearly that he's not speaking highly of Christianity. He certainly is not holding any sympathy for them. And in this, you know, some scholars contend that there may have been some sort of interpolation by later Christian authors and editors, but it's very hard to tell in this situation. And it also may be that his sources for this information were Christian themselves. But as I mentioned before, of course, whether it be Josephus or whether it be Tacitus, Clearly, they're writing this decades after the fact, trying to create a history. Yes, um, that was one of the things I noticed when you showed me uh, the historical sources. They are both way after Jesus' uh, Jesus's lifetime. Do you uh, wonder if there's any reason no one was, no historians making note of him during his lifetime? You know, Patrick, to be fair, and I should qualify this, it would only be speculation on my part. There's no question about it. Whether it be Jesus or any number of historical figures who have become far more important, well-known, and just generally significant than they were in their lifetime. And if you were to look at this from the Roman perspective, in terms of a potential history or someone that's coming out of that tradition, the fact of the matter is when it comes to Jesus, as important as he is to us today, and we know why, at the time, it might not have rung significant for them because they may have just looked at him as a, another Jewish rabble-rouser, and Jewish rabble-rousers were executed all the time. That was not unusual. They may not have given it any real second thought. And in terms of how it propagates from there, the story in general, of course, is while we can't consider it 
a, a, a definitive historical source, even though it does have historical significance in certain ways and the ways we had mentioned prior, prior to pen to papyrus and taking down the Gospels, there's really no question that a great deal of the sources for those stories and how they would have gotten to that point between 70 AD and 120 AD, in all likelihood, is out of an oral tradition. This has been happening for a very long time, and it's a very difficult question to answer, one with only speculation, other than to say that many of the people, perhaps, who were doing history at that time wouldn't have had, one, the interest of the Jews, and two, if they were Roman, they may just have looked at him as another Jewish rabble-rouser who was ultimately crucified. So, very difficult to give you a great answer in that regard. If I had to speculate it on my own, uh, if I had to speculate as well myself, I would probably agree that it was something to do with he simply, people didn't realize what a big deal he was at the time. That's that's such a poor way to put it, put that. But you, you know about Vincent van Gogh, Paul, and how in his lifetime he was just seen as a nobody. It was only after he died people valued his art and how important he was. In my head, and I say that's just my own uh, hypothesizing, my own theory as to why we don't have any uh, historical sources of Jesus during his lifetime, is something of the same reason like that. You've even mentioned yourself in uh, this episode, and back in episode one, Jesus wasn't looking to build a new religion, he was just looking to reform Judaism. Absolutely. And, you know, be the obviously the contexts are slightly different. Of course, we both know that. but And of course, the same general idea applies. Also, something else that's really important to note, this is definitely one of those territories that we make sure to cover in the ground rules that when it comes to history and how it's been studied and understood, that its method and the elements and facts that are important have changed a great deal over time. Even in modernity, this is most certainly true. So, you know, what we consider a solid history, the, the way we perform this, at times can be very different for any number of reasons. In addition to the fact that we have a lot of information available, so that's helpful, but that's part of the challenges that generally exist. Now, the other thing that I think it's also rather interesting to note in all of this, and this is very much up to the listeners to look into further because we don't have the answers for you in this regard, but what do we have in regards to archaeological findings and the roles of two major figures that are indeed mentioned by name in the Gospels? Two very important ones that, in this case, largely happen in the last week of Jesus' life. Of course, the first being Pontius Pilate, who was the governor of Roman, first century Roman Palestine at the time, and the other being the one known as Caiaphas, the head of the Sanhedrin, which was a, a Jewish council that handled a lot of the local autonomy issues, because as we mentioned in episode one, the way the Romans generally liked to rule was a little, a little bit more back from the scene. You know, for the most part, they didn't want to push their ideas and beliefs on you, especially in regards to religion. They obviously could be much, much more forceful, but that's generally how they preferred to operate because they care about one thing, peace and order and paying your taxes. And in this case, in terms of Pilate and and what historians believe they can know, is that he was he was the Roman governor. He also was believed to have ruled 10 years, according to Josephus and Philo, who is another historian of the era that was working in Alexandria, noting that he had um, 
something of a difficult relationship with the Jews there at that time, a lot of which had to do with essentially violating that one major tenet that we were talking about in terms of local autonomy, not pushing their religious ideals on you. He apparently ran afoul during his time there in regards to putting up various icons that were religious or in many ways deifying the emperor himself. And also on top of that, there's also talk between both, well, specifically in Josephus, in both uh, Jewish Wars, which is one of his works in Antiquities, there's mentions of Pilate using temple funds, and this is the important temple in Jerusalem, in order to build infrastructure like aqueducts. And it's very unlikely that he did that by force. That's something that scholars largely believe could have only been possible with the cooperation of the Jewish authorities and the priests who work in the temple. Largely, for the most part, he didn't have a great relationship, to be sure. And there are two items that are particularly important. One that's rather well-known, something called the Pilot Stone. And I will certainly qualify this by saying both of the items I am going to mention are still heavily debated by scholars, but we'll give you what we know. The Pilot Stone was a chance finding where they were going and in this very area in and around Caesarea. And they found a block, a construction block, that made up an amphitheater that had happened to be used in construction that was ascribed to commemorate Pilate's time as governor or, or prefect of this area. There's a lot of various beliefs on if it may be valid, it may not be. That's very hard to tell. And in addition to that, also, um, I believe it was in what we know today as Northern Israel, it might have been southern Syria, I'm, I don't quite recall offhand, they also found a ring that most certainly would have been worn by a civil servant that was carbon dated back to that time that commemorated, once again, the rule and time of Pontius Pilate as governor. In addition to that, both Josephus and Philo, which are two disparate and disconnected sources of history, also talk about this difficult relationship. So at the very least, we know he existed he had time there. And the other, of course, is Caiaphas, the head of the Sanhedrin, which we'll talk a little bit more shortly. Caiaphas was the head of the Sanhedrin. And in many ways, if you look into the four Gospels that have become canon, he is one of the main antagonists to Jesus. And he's per, you know, he is shown in a variety of ways, depending on the Gospel in question. And the reason he's interesting in this case, and this is something that's still hotly debated, is back in the early 90s in Israel, they were doing construction to begin building a theme park. If I remember correctly, it was, a, it was a, a water park. And they came across a cave. And inside it, they found an ossuary, which is just is a very ornate form of burial that includes the remains of an individual or, or a family, to be sure. And the fact that they were using a cave and it was an ossuary very much conformed with traditions for Jewish burial at that place at that very time. And they believe that they found the remains of three people, one of which was, after forensic examination, was roughly a 60-year-old man. And on the in the ossuary, which of course is ornate, it, it refers to him as Caiaphas. And that it was, some scholars think it's not ornate enough. Some believe that it was perfectly you know, significant, and it was both dated, all the remains were dated to this period. So you can look it up, we'll share this on social media, 
you guys can get into the debate, make out what you can, because, you know, people who do this all the time haven't found out these answers, but we'll give you the information as we understand it. So at the very least, we have a pretty good idea of two major figures that are mentioned there and possible, like I said, I emphasize possible archaeological evidence that may further this. And when you look at that, it's actually a perfect segue in a lot of ways, because when it comes to understanding the life of Jesus, and specifically in the New Testament as it's recounted, it's really valuable to try and go and look at it, but you don't want to look at it in a bubble, because when you look at it in a bubble without any sort of context of where this, these stories fit into that world, they can be a little incomprehensible. And when you put it in a greater context, that's something that's worth examining. So one of the first questions, of course, is what would Jews of Jesus's time thought of Jesus himself or his movement? It's something of a provocative question, and one I think it can definitely drive the conversation in a meaningful way. Well, if you look at it and just the general story that runs through the Gospels as it's told, which I said does have some historic significance because they don't deviate in the, in the big picture, but they differentiate very specific details and accounts among them. So, how would Jesus have been viewed by other Jews of his time? Well, based on the geography of where he lived and where he was raised, he's coming really from a, a distant rural area. Whereas if you're talking about Judea, where it's Jerusalem and the all-important Second Temple, that's the cosmopolitan center. You know, the two ways, the simplest way that I can give the audience some something to relate to in this regard, imagine Kansas and imagine Midtown Manhattan. You know, that's the kind of thing that we're talking about here. And of course, the, the closer you are to the temple and that cosmopolitan center, most definitely creates a, a certain credibility in the mind of the Jews who would have lived there at that time. In addition to that, one thing that is pretty certain is that in order to, to do what he, he had done and to get the kind of attention that he did and, and to have made any real uh, blip on the radar screen in the bigger picture of the people who held power in that time, he most certainly would have had to have a, a strong working knowledge of Hebrew, both reading it and writing it, in order to be able to become learned and, and teach from the Tanakh, or the Old Testament. And in this case, the other thing that's important to remember is that when it comes to Jesus, and this is something that might seem obvious, but not necessarily, is that in Jesus's life, Jesus of Nazareth was never referred to as Jesus Christ, which comes from the Greek Christos, which means anointed one. He was a Jew, and in every respect would have been viewed as a Jewish reformer. He's reaching back into the Tanakh and driving and deriving his information and belief from that text, from that religious tradition. In fact, relative to the people that he was dealing with in many ways, and I've heard this put in a number of ways, but I, I, I like this one, which is the reason Jesus, in regards to his desire and specific means of reforming Judaism, was that the reason he was new school is because he was so old school in terms of his interpretation in various aspects of the Tanakh. And 
once again, he couldn't have created this following without having that knowledge and without being able to study it in the way that he would have been necessary in order to do so. Uh, undoubtedly, you know, he would have had both supporters and detractors. You know, this is the human experience. You're not going to win over everybody. Some people you will. There are going to be some people that, that don't agree with you to varying degrees of belief. That's, I would say, a very human thing and, and in no way unique in this regard. Certainly, he would have been viewed, especially by the Sanhedrin and the, the more local autonomy Jewish authority, as a potential rabble-rouser, especially as his movement grows. And they're very mindful of this sort of thing, but we'll get to that in a moment. And because of that, and garnering the kind of attention that would be especially viewed as a potential rabble-rouser, he could have also been perceived as a possible threat to the various tenuous peace that existed between the Jews and the Romans. And in this case, like we talked back in episode one, is that when it comes to the relationship between the Jews and the Romans, it's very tenuous. And in the eyes of Jews, there's a cultural memory that comes out of the Babylonian exile, which occurs uh, right around 600 BC, where the Babylonians come in, they conquer Israel at that point in time, and end up banishing many of the Jews to and exiling them to Babylon, and then it come back for another 60 and 70 years uh, until Cyrus the Great ended up taking them out, uh, the Babylonians themselves. It's one of the reasons he's spoken of so highly in the Tanakh, to be sure. Now, with all of this generally in mind, how people, specifically Jews, may have viewed him in his time and place, and some of the, the larger and more prominent characters that are depicted in the New Testament, specifically the four Gospels, let's ask ourselves the big question, the big picture question. Where do the events that are recalled in the New Testament fit in the world that it happened? Because it can be actually rather incomprehensible in many ways without seeing the context in which it did. So back in episode one, we talked about how Jerusalem and first century Palestine, especially with the relationship between the Jews and the Romans, that it was very much a powder keg, because not every Jew, of course, had very positive or warm feelings for the Romans. It was always a very difficult fit, and naturally, there's every reason to believe that something could have gone awry very quickly. In fact, this is not in any way misfounded. If you go to, we're, you know, we're going to talk about this at great length in the upcoming episode for 70 AD, which of course is the Jewish uprising of Jerusalem against the Romans, which starts a couple of years before that, the siege that occurs in and around the temple in Jerusalem, and the Jews being banished in 70 AD, which created roughly the, the two millennia diaspora, which for all intents and purposes only truly ended with the creation of the modern state of Israel, to be sure. So it's a very, very long time. So where does he fit in this larger picture? But well, we know it's a powder keg, we know there's a tenuous relationship, and specifically when you're looking at what is recounted as events of the last week of his life, there are a few things that are really important to keep in mind. Let's take it first from the Roman point of view. If you are the Roman authorities in charge of first century Palestine, in this case Pontius Pilate, you make your administrative head and capital in Caesarea, which is where they spent most of their time. It was a major administrative capital in greater Roman Syria, of which Palestine was a part. 
and you don't usually spend that much time in Jerusalem with one exception, and that is during the Passover celebration, in which case you have an enormous, an absolutely enormous influx of people that are making the pilgrimage to Jerusalem in order to celebrate that particular holiday. And, you know, for for the modern listener, and this is a great way to visualize it, I think, so think about images that you might have seen of the pilgrimage to the Hajj, where you have a great many people that are coming from all over to this one very concentrated point where it just increases the number of people there by a lot. You have a lot of people there. They're on a very specific uh, mission insofar as anything is concerned and their strong beliefs. And so when you have all of these people in one place, if you are the ruling Roman authority, that's the one time you're going to come to Jerusalem from Caesarea so you can have feet on the ground, eyes on the scene, to try to make sure that there isn't any trouble. That's largely what they're concerned with. That's the reason Pilate would have been there. That's the reason Pilate would have been there with any sort of troops, trying to kind of police the whole thing, but for the most part, making sure nothing goes particularly awry. Now, when you're looking at it from the Jewish perspective for the Jewish population, and in this case, specifically the Sanhedrin, one thing that they were also, of course, very worried about, because once again, the Babylonian exile is most certainly a cultural memory of great significance, they're just as interested in keeping the peace as well, especially at a time that's very volatile. And from what I understand, a lot of the classes of Roman societies, especially Sadducees and, and Levites, if you're talking about priests and, and Kohims as well, that they would have also shared that Roman ambition to make sure everything ran as smoothly as possible. So when you're looking at this, you begin to understand exactly what the motivations might have been as that greater story is told. That you look at Jesus, you look at a potential rabble-rouser at a very volatile time, in addition to anything else they may have thought about him or any other particular desires they may have had to that extent, which I will not speculate on, that, those are really the big ones. And of course, for all intents and purposes, Jesus does arrive, and he clearly has enough of a following and enough gravitas and uh, enough, I would say, significance in that time to have most certainly made a significant mark on their radar. And one thing that is important to note, more than anything, is that while the Romans in the best of circumstances most certainly did provide local autonomy, they were also there to make sure that whatever the populace was doing, whatever their beliefs or practices may be, did not clearly violate Roman law. So basically the thing that's important to remember in all of this in terms of the execution of Jesus is that when it came to the Roman authorities, and most certainly how Pilate would have looked at this, when apparently, as it's depicted in the Gospels, let's just work with this, these recollection of events within what it would have meant in a bigger picture, is when they go, which specifically those on behalf of the Sanhedrin to bring him before them the night before he would have been executed, when they got to Gethsemane, some of his disciples were apparently armed with a sword, and apparently one, according to the recollections in the New Testament, 
even took off a piece of the ear of one of the people that came to apprehend Jesus. Now, why is that significant in a bigger world? Outside of the religious context, what does that mean politically and practically in regard to power and how it existed in this place at that time, the Jews vis-a-vis the Roman authorities? No. No, I do not know the main reason as to why he was not from a historical reason anyway. Well, the way it would have been viewed, especially if indeed some force was used in resisting Jesus's apprehension by those who were following him, they would have looked at it as a potential act of sedition. Sedition meaning the intent as well as the clear verifiable evidence that this person or this group of people are looking to permanently upend the existing Roman order. It's true of sedition in any case, but in this specific respect, the Roman authorities. And of course, given just the volatility of the time and how many people are there, everybody, both the Romans, the Jewish authorities, everyone in addition to that is on pins and needles because so much can go wrong so quickly. And it would be very difficult to control, even with a well-trained Roman legion. I mean, it would be incomprehensible to be sure. And so when they eventually do bring him in front of Pilate, and there are many different possibilities in terms of what that trial may have looked like, there are even some scholars who think it's possible that he may have been executed without a trial at all because Jewish rabble-risers were crucified all the time, as a matter of course, by the Romans. They could be very, very, they could use their authority in very demonstrative and violent ways under those cases. And so while Pilate would not have been particularly moved by any sort of religious connotation or any sort of religious violation insofar as the Jews are concerned and Jesus's fate, what he would have been concerned about and any Roman in his position would have been concerned about is the essentially the potential or at least being portrayed that way, if you're the one prosecuting him, as a potential act of sedition against Roman authority. All in all, if there was any way that this would have moved forward, even if it was only with tacit Roman consent, where if indeed Pilate did wash his hands and, and let this move forward, the one thing that was undeniable is the only thing he would have cared about would have been sedition. Because remember, peace and order, and paying your taxes. That's what would have mattered to him. And insofar as we can tell, of course, is that whether it be with active or tacit Roman consent, Jesus was then executed via crucifixion right before the Passover holiday had begun in Jerusalem. And something that's really important to point out here is that crucifixion is obviously absolutely ghastly, barbaric way to kill anybody, not that anybody should ever be killed, but my goodness, it's important to know that Roman citizens, of which Jesus most certainly was not, if indeed they were tried and sentenced to death, if you're a Roman citizen, you are not allowed to be crucified. However, if you're not a Roman citizen, you're most certainly to go. And for all intents and purposes, it's generally understood that crucifixion was about the worst way to go, just given the nature of the experience, the sight that it creates, it is absolutely terrifying and barbaric. So however, you know, whether it be active or tacit Roman consent, 
the idea is that the reason ultimately Pilate would have allowed this to go forward is not for any particular religious consideration in regards to the Jews, but how it is being portrayed that Jesus may have been in collusion and conspiracy to commit sedition, which if you, if you find them, you go, they arm and they resist. It doesn't take that much convincing, as we know, to have somebody crucified, unfortunately, because it happened all the time. And it's important to note this. It's really by far the worst way to go. And for everything that matters, everybody involved is very much aware of this fact without any doubt whatsoever. Like I said, they're largely trying to convey the idea that he was looking to enact sedition, which, given how quick and mercilessly the Roman authorities dealt with individuals of that nature, based on having some of his followers be armed with the sword in addition to resisting in the way that they did, it wouldn't have been a hard case to push forward that indeed there was evidence that there was a conspiracy to commit sedition. Now, I'm not saying that that is what happened. There is absolutely no evidence whatsoever to suggest that Jesus was trying to upend the current order. However, from a Roman legal standpoint, and for the Sanhedrin to bring him before Pilate, that is the thing that Pilate would have cared about. Whether it was true or not, you're not going to get a very long audience, and they're not going to look at it in great detail and try it on the evidence and a greater investigation to that nature. But without a doubt, going out in crucifixion was about as terrible a fate as you can imagine, and certainly not the fate that if you are looking at Jesus and, and you look at him in his theological and Christological perspective, it was definitely not the way one of his nature, you would want to go in that fashion. That is uh, very true. And uh, just the one final thing from me I want to say about this. Um, we're only four episodes into this podcast, and the namesake of AD history has already been born and died. And it's just a staple show how important uh, Jesus is in this world that all of history, the next, God, goodness, 2,000 years, we're just under 1,960, about 1,980 years, I'd say we're on by now, how all of those following years and the years before him and these before he was alive have become named in his honour, at least to our calendar system anyway. And it only took just over 30 years for that to happen. I just think that's incredible. No, there's really, really no other way to put it. It's so much of the last 2,000 years, especially, it's very much true of world history, especially Western history, but this is very global today. You know, we're talking about a population of over 3 billion Christians, that how it sparks out of the life and experience of a single individual and how that ends up resonating with the people that ultimately end up following this faith and how it impacts so much of what is to follow. Listen, even though he's gone, a lot more is going to happen around him and the religion that's going to form from him. We aren't, even though Jesus is gone, we definitely aren't done with Jesus and his teachings, that's for sure. <laughs> no, no, we have not seen 
the last of Jesus. And specifically, we are just, in many respects, telling the very beginning of this all-important piece of our greater world history, something that is absolutely incalculable in regards to its importance in building the brick and mortar of our present HD world. This is the AD History Podcast. Anyway, I think that brings us to the end of our journey for today. Patrick, where can people find us? You can find me personally on Twitter at NameExplainYT, and of course you can find me on my YouTube channel, NameExplain. And for myself, you can find me on my newly minted Twitter account at the handle at PKD in history, as well as on the social media news platform Quartz by searching Paul K. DeCostanzo. Also, take a peek at my reader email submitted Q&A column, the World War II Brain Bucket over on TGNR. We have a link down in the description. If you enjoy AD history and you want to support the show, be sure to leave a glowing five-star review. Or if you're on YouTube, like, share, and subscribe. AD history really does depend on listeners like you leaving reviews and ratings to help support it. Now over to Anna to properly send you guys home. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Yes, thank you for listening. Be well. Until next time. Like all good things, we come to an end for today. Thank you for listening to the AD History Podcast. It is listeners such as yourself who make this show possible and truly awesome. Be sure to follow and subscribe for upcoming AD History podcast episodes, available wherever podcasts are found. Also, follow AD History on social media. Follow the show on Twitter at the handle at ADHistoryPC, as well as on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash ADHistoryPodcast and Instagram as ADHistoryPodcast. In addition to liking and subscribing on YouTube by searching AD History Podcast. Do you have a direct comment or question for Paul and Patrick? Drop them an email at adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. Also, be sure to visit the show's homepage at tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast. On behalf of Paul and Patrick, thank you for listening to the AD History Podcast. We will see you again next time in the ever-growing tapestry of world history.